0: This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen with our ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker.
1: By the way, you can also get the premium service on Substack, .substack contrarianpod.substack.com. Exact same benefits, exact same price. This particular episode is brought to you by the Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative. Do you know a young person, aged 8 through 15, interested in learning about the stock market? What about learning how to budget and make money in ways that schools don't teach? How about why countries are rich or poor? What about the economy? What if you could learn all of this while also competing for cash prizes? Two high school students have launched the Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative in order to explore these concepts and many more. This program is not exclusive to Connecticut. It is entirely virtual, Open to anybody aged 8 through 15 who has a high speed internet connection and can join on Zoom. It's 100% free and 100% virtual, consisting of activities like groups of buyers and sellers, trade simulations, budgeting, and stock picking activities with cash prizes for winners, and much more. So visit the CELI on Facebook or Twitter at CTEcon Literacy for more information. All right, I am here with Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management in San Francisco. Michael, you and I had a pre-call about this, and the basic premise here that we're going to talk about is that investors overestimate the impact of the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and other central banks on markets and underestimate market structure. And I'm curious what you mean by uh, market structure. Maybe you can get into that a bit. But I'm also interesting that as we look forward now to the Fed meeting on September 22nd and everybody's sitting around on pins and needles to see if they're going to announce any tapering, what you think the impact of that, if any, will be. But yeah, to start off, maybe you can just talk a little bit about your views of market structure, what you mean by that, and why it's more important potentially than the Fed.
2: Sure. So, so market structure literally means who are the market participants and what are the behaviors that they're engaged in, right? And you can think about the simplest examples of market structure that have occurred over the course of my career, which you know, spanning thirty years now. So it would include things like the ending of the traditional uh, specialist structure on the New York Stock Exchange or on the American Exchange, the collapse of the multi-regional exchanges. You used to have the Pacific Exchange out here that traded options on a regular basis or was, a, was one of the primary repositories of auctions. Um, you had the introduction of decimalization, right? you've had the introduction of high-frequency trading, you've had the collapse in interest rates That influences not just the underlying behavior of market participants in terms of how they value a discounted stream of future cash flows, which is certainly an impact, but is a little bit less clean than I think people would generally think about. But more important than that, I would actually suggest the loss of that kind of high yield or relatively high reasonable return, you know, 2000, you could have gotten five and a half to six percent from a US 10 year treasury. Today, you're looking at one and a half percent, which has forced people into the market for all sorts of alternative yield structures, things like selling call options or underwriting put options to generate additional yield on their portfolio and obtain the income that they feel they're being deprived of as they approach retirement. So, mm. that behavior is ultimately what I'm referring to when I talk about market structure the behavior of the internal participants.
1: Got it. A big one you didn't mention was uh, index funds and the, the move to passive investing. Is that one another one there?
2: I, I, I had a sneaking suspicion we were going to bring that one up okay. in, in a future discussion. But yes, to me, that is actually the single most important okay. structural change that has occurred. In 1996, if you had looked at the market share of passive investment strategies, it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 2%. Today, that number is 2% of the U.S. market capitalization. Today, that number is somewhere in the 44% range. And that's a combination of passive index mutual funds, ETFs, what are referred to as total return swaps, uh, futures, uh, all sorts of indexing strategies. It would also include things like commingled investment trusts, CITs, which are basically non-registered mutual funds that operate at slightly lower costs and are often offered in things like 401ks and IRAs, et cetera so those have exploded in size in a manner that almost nothing else can really compare in in my analysis at least interesting okay so now where does that leave us
1: and i know that you've studied past market cycles past market bubbles and what does that mean that uh, now for for the current state of markets that this is all driven by are mostly driven by passive uh, funds and, and the other things that you mentioned, changes in market
2: structure. So put yourself in a very simple simulation and just imagine that you have only two types of investors, a quote unquote value investor and an index investor, right? The value investor is going to see an increase in price that is not supported by a similar increase in fundamentals, as indicative of lower future returns to that security and will typically be induced to sell, right? So this is proprietary research that I did over the past couple of years. It's one of these surprising things. I'm I'm surprised nobody else had thought to survey the investor base and ask this question. But if you survey investors and portfolio managers and you ask them the very simple question, how do you respond to an increase in valuations? your discretionary manager will say higher valuation makes you less likely to buy, more likely to sell, right? Now, passive investor, a systematic investor in an index is gonna behave actually in the exact opposite behavior because when something goes up in price, it becomes a larger share of the index and subsequently captures a larger share of your incremental investment dollar. In other words, you have a higher propensity to invest on a marginal basis in that security that is appreciated than you otherwise would have, right? So the two investor behaviors almost can't be thought of as more different.
1: Mm.
2: The market weighted passive investor is going to reinforce momentum behavior. Prices Mm. moving higher begets more buying. Mm -hmm. The value investor, the systematic discretionary value investor who is, uh, sorry, the discretionary value investor who is looking at it from a forward expected return can intuit some improvement, some uncompensated or not yet indicated improvement in fundamentals associated with that price increase. But we always call the what is being priced in, right? But all else equal, they will have a higher inducement to sell. And so when you replace that discretionary value investor, a traditional investor, with a systematic passive investor or index investor, you absolutely have to change the market's reaction function as the weights between those two investors change. Interesting. And to illustrate
1: this, we can take the example of Tesla, right? So this is an individual stock that, that as we all know, run up quite a bit over the last couple of years and was just recently included in the S&P 500. Now, if you're a traditional if, you know, value investor, like you said, and you bought Tesla at 100 or something, you have at some point probably started shedding these, the, the, your holdings and maybe even sold all of it um, except for maybe a small portion. But, if as it is included in the S&P and it it, it becomes a larger part of the S&P, index holders are obligated to buy this stock just to match what it's doing in the index, right?
2: So Tesla is almost the perfect example of this, right? And the reason why it's the perfect example is because we actually have within Vanguard two separate types of investors that own Tesla. So Vanguard has the vast majority of their assets are passive and index oriented but they have also a subset of sub-advised funds that are run by firms like Wellington and Bailey Gifford that are actually managed on a discretionary basis. Bailey Gifford was one of the larger discretionary holders of Tesla articulating that they thought the forward expectations in terms of performance and the transition to electric vehicles represented significant untapped potential and they believe that Tesla would appreciate over time. As Tesla began to rise, um, as it was facing inclusion in the index and index arbitrageurs, those who buy and sell in anticipation of the index participants playing, as they began to drive the price up, recognizing that Vanguard would have to buy somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million shares, that discretionary arm of Vanguard actually sold into that event. Hmm. Right. So we actually can see Vanguard's holdings. They needed to buy about 40 million shares in total About 10 million of that, actually about 11 million of that actually came from within a vanguard discretionary fund. Mm -hmm. Really interesting.
1: So obviously, fundamentals are no longer driving this market, if that's what's going on, if you have the indexes um, moving and, and that being the type of thing that requires portfolio managers to add these holdings.
2: Well, I, I would just encourage people to reorient your thinking, right? Because yeah. when we talk about fundamentals and we say, you know, what is going to happen to Tesla? Ultimately, that's my opinion, or that's the mm-hmm. opinion of the Bailey Gifford portfolio manager or analyst or Kathy Wood, et cetera, right? Those are opinions. And if you look at the forecasts from an ARK investment or, you know, they've published their resources, their, their research, et cetera it doesn't re- remotely resemble what has actually happened to Tesla, right? If we go back two or three years ago, we look at their forecasts. it was for a million robotic taxis being driven around on the roads as of today, right? Now, mm. I personally have not been run over by a Tesla robotic taxi, so I'm guessing there's not a million of them out there, mm. but the price is dramatically higher, mm. right? And we can explain the price by what I would describe as the true fundamentals, which is people being forced to buy and sell. Mm. Very interesting. Okay, so where does
1: that leave us now? Um, and, and yes, this may overestimate or over, yeah, the, the impact of the Fed, because traditionally it's just been like, okay, the Fed makes in, makes interest rates higher, and that makes money more expensive for people to borrow, and there, therefore re, some risk com, comes out. But does that still hold true in your opinion as we look here towards the Fed tightening cycle, potentially?
2: So I, I think it does, but I think mm-hmm. that people... You know, the, the difference between the Fed putting interest rates at zero and the Fed putting interest rates at 25 basis points. Like, if you're truly making an investment decision on the difference of 25 basis points, that's just silly. Sure. Right. Like, the uncertainty around, to, this goes back to the point of the fundamentals on Tesla, right? The uncertainty around the fundamentals of Tesla are so large that that change in discount rate of 25 basis points shouldn't have any meaningful impact, right? When you think about the cost of equity for a company like Tesla, a tiny fraction of that, certainly today, is going to be the risk free component of it. The vast majority of that cost of equity is going to be the uncertainty associated with the forecasts that you're making for a company where we really have no good idea for what their fundamentals look like going forward, mm-hmm. right? So you should discount that relatively heavily. Yeah. Sure. It should lead to lower valuations, honestly, than what we see. But when you think about the Fed hiking, or lowering interest rates, it has another impact that's actually quite dramatic. And this was written about by an academic, um, Jonathan Parker at MIT, who highlights that the Fed has a different impact. When the Fed raises or lowers interest rates, it directly affects the pricing of bonds and it changes the value of that collateral. And so again, when you think about the actual fundamentals, if I run a balanced portfolio, say, a target date fund, for example, that is required to have a weighting of 70% equities and 30% bonds, when I enter into an event like the events of March 2020, where the equities have fallen and the Fed is cutting interest rates, causing the bonds to rise, my portfolio becomes unbalanced fairly quickly, and I'm forced to sell bonds and buy equities, Mm -hmm. right? So, Nowhere in there is there a discount function. Nowhere in there am I saying, I think equities are more attractive because bonds have, you know, risen in price or because the interest rate is lower. It literally is just a mechanical rebalancing process. Mm -hmm. And target date funds now represent the vast majority of the incremental dollars flowing into retirement funds.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that right? Wow. Okay. So yeah, so then, uh, you know, the Fed tapering, which would could potentially lead to well you know, taper tantrums or whatever, I mean the ten year has been the yields have been going up a bit, which is uh, Im- implies that you know maybe investors are getting ready to sell, especially if there's a surprise around the tapering announcement, although it wouldn't be a complete surprise
2: um, uh, yeah I, I think the challenge is, is that we don't really know, right mm-hmm. so um, y- you can create coherent arguments on both sides in terms of the behavior of interest rates, in general, the perception that the Fed is going to taper. Tends to le- uh, excuse me. Tends to lead to lower, longer-term interest rates rather than right. higher, because the market is effectively saying they are removing stimulus that is more likely to lead to conditions in which they need to cut interest rates further in the f- in the future. Right. Right. So we- we're seeing this quote-unquote perplexing behavior, where the narrative that exists in the public press is, is that the Fed is actively suppressing interest rates. What I would actually argue they're doing is suppressing credit spreads. Mm. They are reducing the cost of risky credit, but if anything, they're probably inflating the cost of government debt. Okay, so,
1: so you, it sounds like maybe you're in the camp that the yield is a little bit overvalued at 1.37. I
2: think, it's, I think it's very hard to argue that the US has too low interest rates. When I look around the world and I see negative yielding 10-year paper in Europe or in Japan, Certainly, there are differences in terms of inflation, although those are overstated and largely tied to the way that it is measured. Europe has a different measure of inflation than we have in the United States. It understates the cost of housing component. And if you normalize for that, the European experience in inflation is not meaningfully different than the US experience in inflation. Mm -hmm. Japan has similar characteristics where fresh food makes up a disproportionate amount of their index. And so I, I, I think we tend to get way too um, focused on measuring, you know, things in, you know, tenths of a percent, right? You know, is U.S. inflation 3.3% or 3.1%? It, it, that's not really what's driving anything.
1: Right, right, right. So do you think that inflation is transitory then or the, the-
2: So I think that that's, you know, the term stochastic means we don't know, right? It's uncertain in the future and it's dependent upon various things. There are components of inflation that definitely feel like they have crossed uh, the Rubicon in terms of their characteristics. But one of the points that I always highlight to people and anyone who's heard me before has heard me talk about this over and over and over again, the characteristics of inflation have always been associated with fundamental underpinnings in terms of an outward shift in aggregate demand, right? Right you either have a catastrophic inward shift in supply of which we've just experienced, right? So the pandemic was a significant inward shift in supply by disrupting you know, very complicated supply chains and creating conditions under which toilet paper suddenly wasn't showing up on the shelves, right? Mm. That disruption to the supply chain is working its way through and will eventually renormalize barring an escalation with China, barring an escalation in a variety of other ways barring a return of you know, coronavirus and a re-shutdown of the economy. Like, there's all sorts of things that are happening there that we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. But I would, I would caution people to look at the history that we are intimately familiar with, the history of the 20th century, which is one of the most inflationary centuries in history, and point out that that century is totally unique in human history for the explosion in human population and hence the outward shift in aggregate demand associated with it. As we look at the 20th century, we began the 20th century with roughly a billion people in the global labor force and a worker is simply somebody who says, I want to increase my consumption, therefore I'm willing to trade off leisure time for increased purchasing power, right? So we started out with a billion people, we ended with somewhere in the neighborhood of five and a half billion people. Using UN population projections, which are hopelessly overly optimistic in terms of population growth, the 21st century looks basically like a move from five and a half billion people to 6.2 billion people. There's almost no growth whatsoever, Mm -hmm. right? So to see the 21st century in the same inflationary characteristics as the 20th century, to me, is very problematic.
1: Mm, Interesting. Yeah, and that would certainly change the equation a little bit um all right cool i want to come back and ask you some more about this about the historical um you know interest cycles that we've seen and some other stuff but first take a quick break so we can get our sponsors to have their word in Uh, if you're a premium subscriber you will not get the break so do not touch the dial if you want to become a premium subscriber go to the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech.
1: The Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative is not exclusive to Connecticut. Any person ages 8 through 15 is welcome to join the programs on Zoom. It's 100% free, 100% virtual, consisting of activities such as groups of buyers and sellers, trade simulations, budgeting, and stock-picking activities with a prize for the winner, and much more. Visit the CELI on Facebook or Twitter at CTEconLiteracy.com. For more information. Welcome back, everybody, here with Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Michael, this is the segment of the show where I like to ask our guests about their background, their professional background, and how they came to this state of their career. So yeah, how did you you get started? And and, uh, yeah, take us back and, and tell us about that.
2: Uh so I you know I started in a fairly traditional manner I went to the University of Pennsylvania graduated from the Wharton School of Business um went to into management consulting because I was really interested in understanding how businesses work worked for a firm called Bain and Company and then left to co-found a firm called the Parthenon Group and built an expertise you know to the extent a 26 year old can have expertise in valuing business units And along with a couple of peers, started a software company in the mid-1990s that codified those insights. We sold that in 1999, at which point I transitioned to the asset management space, using those tools around valuation. Um, Now, the irony, of course, is that puts me into the camp of the traditional value manager, Mm -hmm. right? You know, my thought process was largely around forecasting the individual free cash flows of a company or figuring out its cost of capital and discounting that back exactly in the manner I was describing for the traditional Value manager, I think the one kind of wrinkle that I brought to the table was early on in my Bain career. I was exposed to the idea that industry and sector are far more important determinants of company return, at least over a cycle, than the individual company itself. And so while there's a number of asset managers who do very well by identifying in a Phil Fisher common stocks, uncommon profits for- framework, you know, the exceptional holdings that power markets higher, the apples, et cetera, of the world my focus was always on what was the sector or industry that I thought was well positioned for a, a, the sec- section of the business cycle that we were in. That naturally led me to begin to focus in the macro space. And um, I initially uh, ran separate accounts and mutual funds uh, mutual funds for a firm called Associates. and Associates. Then left was recruited by a firm Canyon Partners who was one of the first clients of our software company Um, and that was my introduction to hedge funds. In the 2006 to 2008 time period, um, I became very focused on the housing bubble and participated in Canyon's trades around that. And coming out of that, you know, built an expertise around the use of derivatives for hedging portfolios, expressing bets, et cetera. Um, With Canyon Partners, I'd founded their New York office, built it up to a team of about 15 people and several billion dollars in assets. Was recruited out of Canyon Partners to launch my own firm, um, uh, seated by George Soros, and then uh, that was an epic disaster. That you know <laughs> is a story that's well told in other places. Uh, performance was fine, but the business dynamics, the unfortunate dynamics around the business, were challenging, and that you know ultimately led me to shut that down. And then um, you know I've done. Various activities. The most, the thing I'm most known for is is managing a a chunk of Peter Thiel's personal capital in the period from 2016 through 2019, Um, and uh, being very proactive in terms of predicting the Volmageddon events of February 2018 and positioning Peter to take advantage of that.
1: With the Volmageddon, I'm trying. That was
2: that was the collapse of XIV. Okay. The, okay. Okay. The inverse, the inverse fix ETF. Oh
1: right. Oh right. 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 Well, this all kind of begs the question: What do you? Where? Where is this um, current cycle?
2: Well, so so this is part of the dynamic that I think is is unfortunate because when you move to passive investment and the marginal flows have shifted so aggressively to passive asset management. That there is no money, there is no marginal money going into the discretionary manager. All that's happening is actually discretionary outflows. Mm-hmm. What that means is is that passive managers actually have a negative impact, right? Because they're constantly being forced to sell the names or the areas that they have insight on, and buy back areas that they might have been short from a fundamental standpoint, right? that creates very confusing information flows in terms of the market, because as they sell, they depress the price of areas that should theoretically be going higher. And they're propping up the price of areas that they they should that they want to short, that they think should be going down. And that then in turn is amplified by the passive investment vehicles, which look at those marginal activities and continue to buy, right? An extreme example is we talked about Tesla. If you look at a company like Nikola, which is a competitor to Tesla, pretty much, at least from what I understand at this point, certainly not investment advice, has been acknowledged as a fraud. The founder has been sued for fraud. It was a SPAC that had no revenues. Its, it's you know, contract with General Motors has been canceled. And yet, if you look at who are the largest holders now or who are the buyers of that security, it's Vanguard, BlackRock, et cetera. The passive players continue to buy because it is part of the indices. And they've managed to support what is again acknowledged as a business with no underlying fundamentals. It still has a valuation somewhere in the neighborhood of five billion dollars, which feels like nothing in today's world. But that's a big company, right? That's a lot of money. Hmm. Um, and so you're 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 getting very confusing signals in the market, right? It also creates an underlying condition where the structure of the indices reinforces much of the behavior that we kind of wonder about, right? So. When you think about the way that your typical discretionary manager's portfolio is constructed, they're going to be seeking out single names that they think that they can have disproportionate insight on. Inevitably, that biases them towards smaller names that are less researched by other players. And in many ways, a portfolio manager on the discretionary side has limitations in terms of how diversified their portfolio or concentrated their portfolio can become. Right? They have rules around diversification they're actually for mutual funds and ETFs explicitly encoded in the Investment Company Act of 1940, right? Right. Well, index funds aren't subject to those same rules because they're trying to match the index. And in fact, the SEC has granted waivers against many types of index funds, in particular large cap growth funds that allow them to run in a much more concentrated fashion than they should be able to under the letter of the law. It's what's referred to as a no action letter, Right. Mm-hmm. So as they capture incremental money as the dollars flow into passive, that means by definition, no discretionary manager can hold as much Apple as an S and P 500 growth fund, right? right? So you fire the active manager, you replace it with the S and P 500 growth or the QQQs, and you're creating a natural bid for Apple, right? There's less right. being sold out of the discretionary manager portfolio than is being bought in this in the index portfolio. As a result, what happens to the price of Apple? It pushes higher relative to the rest of the market, even though we all acknowledge that Apple's growth days are largely behind it.
1: Unless they get a car?
2: If, no. Even if Apple were to get a car, I think the underlying feature to remember on a car is, is that it is dramatically lower margins. Yeah,
1: than phone. yeah no, no, no question.
2: Okay, so basically the the,
1: the whole idea then of, of cycles is kind of, cast into question a little bit now this is not the first time we've had that um you'll recall the late 90s when they said business cycles didn't matter i'm not saying that's what you're saying here but i mean uh, ultimately there is still some kind of you know be it the consumer be it whatever something
2: that drives the overall economy isn't there well, when you say drive the economy, we certainly haven't banished business cycles, right. right? We've had a profit cycle in 2014 to 20, you know, give or take 2018, right? Where U.S. profits didn't grow and actually declined leading into the pandemic. The pandemic was kind of the penultimate dynamic on that, Stimu- you know, the stimulus that emerged created the trough for the earnings stream for the S&P 500 and for other components. Um, but we've absolutely had business cycles, right? What seems to have deteriorated are market cycles and they've been replaced by you know what I would describe as a roller coaster experience of long climbs punctuated by you know momentary panic as the market plunges, only to you know rise back again um, again on what what people generally ascribe to the Fed stepping in to provide support. <clears throat> I just reiterate the conversation that we had before, right? There's a systematic component to that that I think people tend to underappreciate. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay.
1: So, but then now do you see things getting a little bit uh, like, is, are we still expanding um, here with, with the business cycle? Because one does impact the other. I mean, okay. There's no more market cycles or there, there, but still, you can still have massive periods of risk off and I guess risk on, like we saw from last March
2: until the present day, pretty much with a couple of hiccups. So yeah, I, I would separate the two, right?
0: Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information.
2: So absolutely market cycles contribute to business cycles. So when asset prices fall, that causes consumers to feel less confident and they tighten up their purse strings, which can create a profit cycle, all else being equal. I think that's going to become particularly important as more and more boomers face retirement, Mm. not with the defined benefit plans or high levels of um, fixed income that their parents enjoyed, but with much higher fraction of their income tied to the variability of equity market performance and the much lower levels of dividend yield and interest rates that we have today. So asset prices become a larger contributor to the wealth effect. Mm -hmm. Um, That to me feels far more plausible then significant earnings declines driving a collapse in the stock market absent again a, a what i would refer to as a technical or a fundamental feature around stock market repurchases right share repurchases um but even there you know we've seen cycles around that where it has less impact than you might otherwise think and this is one of the perverse dynamics for me around passive is that reinforcement that we were referring to f- to before it takes two forms one is it has this characteristic of reinforcing momentum, reinforcing the growth of the larger stocks which become larger and larger within the indices. The second thing that happens is that passive investment vehicles don't hold cash. Mm. Now, that doesn't seem like it has a huge impact, but if you very simply imagine just the simplest model of the world that could possibly exist, right? so there's $1,000 total invested in markets. Your typical discretionary manager is going to carry somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% cash, at least historically, right? So $950 worth of equities and $50 of cash out of that $1,000 that has been invested. That same um, uh, portfolio construction or same market construction under a passive is going to try to own 100% equities with almost no cash. In fact, the largest mutual fund complex is the Vanguard Total Market Index it's roughly a trillion dollars in AUM, depending on which classes that you want to include and which variations and CITs and everything else that you want to include, it has a negative $100 million in cash, right? So a trillion dollars in assets with okay. $100 million in cash. Now they have lines of credit that they can access, et cetera, but there is no substitute for that, right? And so- you think that the impact of that would be to raise asset prices by give or take 5%, right? So I go from 95% equity to 100% equity, equity prices should go up by 5%. Unfortunately, that's not the way it happens because when you buy and sell, you can't destroy that cash, the Mm -hmm. cash remains. And so if you're moving from active managers to passive managers, what you actually are doing is changing a cash preference. And since cash has zero variability, right? $50 cash is always going to be $50 cash, the only way that that can actually be accommodated is through higher equity prices. Mm. right? In other words, if I want to make that 50 0.1% or 10 basis points of the market, I have to raise equity values to 50,000 away from 950 to 50,000. So a move from 0% passive to 100% passive causes more than a 50X appreciation in equities. Hmm. That covers a lot of sins right now we're not going to get there because that increase also creates much higher volatility and I would argue that's part of what we're seeing in the markets we're seeing dramatically higher level higher levels of what's referred to as skew. Hmm. the market is pricing the deep out of the money the true risk options that the market collapses by 50% or more over the course of a year those are being priced at the highest premiums relative to realized volatility that we've ever seen in history the market, senses something is wrong.
1: Yeah. But then how does this ter- whole thing turn? I mean, if there's so much index uh, you know, funds out there and they need to keep buying to rebalance, then what's going to cause the indexes to drop?
2: Well, I think there's two things that cause it to drop, right? One is, is that the larger passive gets as a share of investment, the less Of a what I would refer to as a quanta or a less the less is required, the less selling is required to stimulate a collapse in the market. Right. Right. So I I would point to what happened last March. And the way I would describe the pandemic collapse is active managers sat there in the January, February, very beginning of March period, deeply confused because this was not concealed, right? We knew the pandemic was occurring. We knew that China was shutting down. Right. We knew that Italy was in serious problems, that the US began to see cases in New York, et cetera, And yet the markets appeared to levitate. Right. Mm. For someone who's looking to the market information for the quote unquote expectations channel, what is actually happening? That's confusing. Right. And you know, you heard Bill Ackman and others talk about it, like something's wrong. I don't know what's going on. My Spidey sense is tingling. I'm going to go out and buy insurance. Right. And he bought credit default swaps. Mm-hmm. What we saw happen in those events is finally the active investor community broke. They tried to de-risk and they found there was nobody to buy from them, right? Mm -hmm. Because the passive managers, the minute they've bought what has been handed to them in dollar terms, they don't look at it and say, oh, the market is on sale. Let's buy more, right? They're full. That's it. They don't show up. And so it contributes to what what is mechanically referred to as an increase in inelasticity in the market, right? Mm -hmm. And so inelasticity is effectively how much does price change for a change in supply and demand? And the really staggering statistic, and Vanguard released this as a point of pride, they noted that less than 1% of their customers transacted in an unusual manner around March 2020, right? So 1%, okay. 1%, right? Now, my reaction is, what would have happened if it was 2 Mm-hmm. or three, okay. right? All right? And my simulations basically suggest that that creates conditions very similar to what we saw transpire with the XIV, where in a single day, it went to zero.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, though, that that was still, a, COVID was still an exogenous shock. I yep. mean, yeah, we saw it coming. Yeah, we knew it was happening. but And, and failing that, again... You know there doesn't seem to really be anything that can kind of
2: turn the whole thing on its head can there well the simplest thing that turns it on its head is that the natural byproduct of raising the value of people's retirement accounts is that withdrawals from much retirement accounts or pension plans take the form of percentage withdrawals right so if i take four percent out of a billion dollar 401k that's a lot more money than would be contributed on a continuing basis right market goes up 50x the contributions are a function of income the withdrawals are a function of asset value and as we move closer and closer to the baby boomer retirement it's simply a matter of time before those two flip in terms of their weight now that has been camouflaged in its impact because while we talk about passive being 44 percent of the market it's very you know it's not homogeneous it is uh, you know in the way that most people would think about it right so you think 44 percent that means I own 44% passive and you own 44% passive. And that means 56% of what we hold is uh, is either held directly or through active managers, right? That's just not how it works. You are probably, you know, X% passive, the vast majority passive or the vast majority active. And importantly, it's largely stratified by age. So those under the age of 40 are North of 90% passive, according to most estimates, wow. those who are, over the age of 65 who represent about 70% of the assets are only about 20% passive, right? So what's actually happening with the continual redemptions and sales that we're seeing from the active manager community is simply that their client base is really old, mm. right? They aren't getting any new clients. Mm. But the baby
1: boomers have been retiring for some time. I mean, you know, I think of my parent, Oh, yeah, my mom born in 47, right? That's kind of a I guess that's, that's an very, old
2: baby boomer, very beginning of the baby boomers. Yes. Yeah. So, so
1: right. Would it so take When does that whole thing culminate and end? If we do the maths here, like the oldest baby. Are your parents formerly...
2: still married?
1: Yes. Okay. So um, your
2: mother retired probably sixty-two is is the typical age for which a female and a married remember, relationship yeah. begins to retire. So you retired ninety-nine, basically, or two thousand nine. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it was a little later.
1: Uh, yeah. Maybe two thousand nine. Yeah, I can't remember.
2: But, so um, That, that yeah. would be fairly typical. Um, there has been the baby boomers, their maximum retirement age is 60 or their target retirement age is 67, right? right? So born, the peak of the baby boomers was 1957. That would okay. put you you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2024 would be the peak okay. for that individual. Now, there's been a number of changes that have happened from a policy standpoint um, under the Trump uh, tax reform. We extended that to 72 in terms of the age at which you're required to begin taking what's called required minimum distributions from the tax deferred. We're now talking about eliminating those entirely, effectively creating conditions under which people never have to take distributions from 401ks, which unfortunately just means that very wealthy people never have to pay taxes. And those right. who actually need the money to eat pay taxes. Right. Um, that kind of sucks is I think the technical term for it, but- what it, yeah. it is under lobbying from the industry mm. so those those factors play through but ultimately once you approach dramatically high level higher levels of passive a second feature begins to interject itself into the market which is that the markets become dramatically more volatile right that inelasticity manifests itself in increased uncertainty around what the price of an equity is going to be at any point in time and as a result that actually naturally leads to a similar deleveraging. And so they're going to get sold in one form or another. We just can't predict with 100% accuracy when that's going to happen. Of course. Yeah, of course. But it does sound like, to your point, that the the major
1: move, a lot of baby boomers are still out in the workforce and, and the peak. Of- a lot of baby
2: boomers are in the workforce and have delayed retirement and have done everything they possibly can to keep their money working in the markets including owning much higher levels of equity than they would have historically because of the deterioration in the yields available to them in fixed income, which they should be naturally de-risking too. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. Very good. Michael
1: Green. Uh, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. Maybe in closing, we could, you could tell the listeners how they can find out more about you. I know you're active on the Twitter profplum99 is your handle there. Um, Is that it? Is there a website too, perhaps?
2: Absolutely. So Simplify, we we offer ETFs um, that are designed to take advantage of our uh, insights and thoughts around the market. Um, We are taking advantage of the rule changes that were introduced in 2019 and 2020 that allow ETFs to do many of the strategies that I historically have done in hedge funds and and have only recently become available to the public markets or to the non-accredited universe. Uh, our website is www.simplify.us, and you can register there for information around our products. And as you mentioned, you can follow me and my colleagues on Twitter. Um, I'm at Plum 99 And then, of course, Simplify is fairly easy to find. It's S-I-M-P-L-I-F-Y.
1: Yeah, and simplify.us is the website again. So thank you all for being with us today. Thank you, Michael, for joining us again. And we look forward to speaking to you again next
0: time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating.